Okay, very quickly, I want to do a quick review because I really want to get to what I think are the, um, the main point of what I'd like all of us to carry over the last part of the Divine Comedy. Last time I read those passages when Dante and Virgil and Stasius ascend to um, the earthy paradise, and there are those beautiful descriptions of the wind. Um, calm and the leaves singing, the sound that they make, producing their own harmony so that they were in harmony with the birds and there was this loveliness. Matilda arrives and I suggested then that she's the counter image of the um, siren. Remember, the siren is an image of the succubus that, that almost demonic, that, that love that we develop in ourselves because of our pride, wanting too much things in the world. And we give the beauty of things too great a power over us. And remember when Dante um, starts looking at her and, and loosens her tongue, um, she begins to sing and he can't free himself. That's an image of the, the power that we give over things because we, in our pride we want to impress, we want to have, we want to possess. Um, <clears throat> and we cannot break the attachments to those things without help. Remember, it's Lucia who comes to get Virgil again, and it's Virgil who wakes up Dante. So even reason itself is insufficient. Virgil is insufficient to break that spell. He needs divine help. And I, and I recall, if we did this, I can't remember now. <laughs> I'm really losing it. I recall the example in the Odyssey, for those of you who've been here. Remember when Odysseus goes to Circe, he, um, Hermes comes to him and gives him the molly, the plant, because without it, he can't break Circe's spell. So in, in, with respect to both of those goddesses, um, Calypso and Circe, he's with Calypso eight years, he's with Circe for one year, he cannot get free of those goddesses without divine help. That's an indication of the power that the feminine has over man. That, that the beauty of woman is this transcendent beauty. I mean, uh, we, we've lost the sense of that by denying transcendence in our world, but if, if, if we do, particularly the men, <laughs> we're in trouble. Um, women are particular vessels of that beauty. It, I mean, it's, it's an image of God in some sense. Some sense. So um, it's really clear from the poets that this, the power that beauty can have over man is something that he, he can't deal with it without the help of the gods. So, um, Matilda is an image of the beauty that Dante can experience once he's freed of all of that, and now he can go into it with a, in the spirit of an adoration or a loving. There's no spell. He doesn't come under her power. He sees this beauty, and in, in some sense, she is the image of the beauty all around him in nature. There he's at home. The threat's gone. Is that clear? <clears throat> so we talked about the, the first experience that Dante has of paradise. And then he has that reckoning with Beatrice. Um, and I read those lines, remember. Um, um, I, don't, I don't want to go through these because I want to save as much of our time as we can. But when she approaches after that long procession, um, 
She says on page 366, she's described as an admiral, an, like the admiral of the fleet. Um, but at the bottom of 366, yes, look at me, yes, I am Beatrice. So you at last have deigned to climb the mountain. You have at last condescended to be here with us. You, who's, you who apparently are above everything have managed to lower yourself so that you can join us. <laughs> What was Father's word? Um, Mary doesn't cut any slack that she very often chastises us. I mean, this makes Mary look like an inarticulate child. Um, you look at me, yes, I am Beatrice. You learned at last that here human bliss um, it lies. I lowered my head and looked down at the stream, but filled with shame at my reflection there, I quickly fixed my eyes upon the grass. This is just before he will faint because she, her words are so severe. And I suggested then um, that the, we can't underestimate the importance of this. Um, let me come back to this, because I want to put this in the context of the two processions. There are two processions, the Beatrician um, procession, when going over to, um, um, when the, when the, um, chariot um, is drawn up by the griffin, who's an image of Christ, surrounded by the books of the Old and New Testament, 360. Under that magnificence of heaven came four and twenty elders, two by two, all of them wearing crowns of fleur-de-lis. They sang as they moved on, Benedictu that Benedicta, thou of all Adam's daughters. Go down as groups of stars will replace other stars high in the heavens. Following them there came Four creatures wearing crowns of forest green, each had six wings with feathers that were all covered with eyes. Were Argus still alive, his eyes would be exactly like those. <coughs> um, remember the the um, the description of the um, virtues at the bottom of 361. There are the supernatural virtues: faith, hope, and charity. These were the three ladies circling in a dance near the right wheel and one was red, so red she hardly would be visible in fire. The second looked as if her flesh and bones were fashioned out of emerald. The third had all the whiteness of new fallen snow. The colors are brilliant. Um, um, 362 at the top, beside the left wheel dancing festivals were four more ladies. These are the natural virtues, temperance, um, prudence, um, Justice and fortitude. Um, remember that the natural virtues to the church fathers were carriers of of graces. They they move us to graces. That our whole life on earth should be spent struggling to become virtuous. And these virtues identify the complete completeness of our nature. Temperance is learning to use restraint. Remember, if we looked at if we went back up to the purgatory again, temperance is the Virtue, virtue particularly suited to deal with things of the world, lust, food, drink. Prudence is knowing what to do um, and when to do at the right time. It's the one that has the extra eye at the top of 362 and led by one with three eyes in her head. That's that inner vision that prudence has. It's 
it's that power of spiritual insight. Um, <clears throat> justice is giving what's due. And remember from our work we've seen, we can't give what's due without ordering our own souls. And fortitude is holding on when things get hard and tough. Not despairing. Despair is, is, a, is a reaction based on our belief that our sins are greater our sins are greater than God's love. That's what despair is. We make our sins greater than his love. And we break our ties with him. It's the one thing we it's the one thing we cannot do to sever our, our ties. So the natural virtues are the ones that lead us to the supernatural, that open us, dispose us to them. And then it describes the, um, <clears throat> the, the major epistle writers, um, Peter, James, John, Jude, and Paul, and Luke, who wrote the Acts. Beside the dancing figures three and four, there came two aged men, that's Luke and Paul. Um, one wore the garments of a father because Luke was a doctor. The other seemed to be his counterpart. He bore a sword so sharp, gleaming so bright, that I thought on the, um, the other bank felt fear. That's Paul. Then I saw coming four hundred men, and the last of them an old man by himself who moved in his own dream, his face inspired. That's John in Revelation. And I suggest, now here, and then, then we have the second, it's not a procession, it's a mask. Um, Dante um, loses consciousness, and when he wakes up, he and Beatrice are, sit, are, are together and will um, watch a mask on page um, on page 379. The pole of the chariot is connected to the tree, and critics um, disagree a lot on what that tree means. Um, some say it's the state, it's the church. I think it's the tree of good and evil, but I also think it's the tree symboling all of nature, everything in nature because it's dead um, after the fall. Once the chariot pole is connected to the tree, it blooms again. Life is given to it again. It's, it's an image of the way in which um, Christ brings life to everything that he gives himself to. And then it shows this mask, this play that's performed, 379. No bolt of lightning flashed through dense cloud as moved the bird of Jove, who then swooped down and threw the tree Tearing off newborn leaves, rending the bark, destroying all the blooms. With his full force, he struck the chariot, which staggered like a ship caught in a storm, careened by waves, tilting starboard and port. Into the cradle of the glorious car, I saw a fox leap up. I think these are heresies because of what it goes on to say. So lean it seemed, the food it fed on had no nourishment. Heresies are empty. They're hollow. They're unreal. Um, the eagle comes down again. The two soups of the eagle, I think, represent um, Constantine making the church um, um, legal and, and presumably giving the donation. Um, because once he did that, he set in motion the, the incestuous relationship between church and state that the, the church was lived in until Dante's time. We, you know we've gone through that. You had the, my notes on the history of that. And then Charlemagne at the end um, rescuing the church. Um, 
on page 380, and then I saw the ground between the wheels opening up, a dragon issued forth, driving its tail up through the chariot. <clears throat> I think that's Satan, um, although some think it may be um, Mohammed and the schism that he set up in the church. Um, seated at the bottom of 380, seated thereon securely like a fort high on a hill, I saw an ungirt whore casting bold, sluttish glances all around, acting as if someone might take her from him, a giant I saw standing there by her side. From time to time, the two of them would kiss. This is an image of the papacy, the pope, who has become whorish because of the way the pope gave himself to the world. You know Dante's sentiments about Boniface. Um, um, Allying herself with the giant, the state, the power of the state. But when she turned her roving, lustful eyes on me, her lover, in a fit of rage, beat her ferociously from head to foot. Whenever the church makes that, cut those covetous glances as if to try to use people, exploit them for the, for the Pope's own interest, it enrages the state because the state loses control. So even these two are divided in their lust. Then furious with jealousy, the giant ripped loose the monster, dragging it away far off into the woods until the trees blocked from my sight, the whore and that strange beast. So two processions. Let me come back to these in just a second. At this point, um, Beatrice will turn to Matilda 386. As they move off, her tone with Dante is constantly stern. When he lags behind, she chastises him. There's nothing that she says that doesn't seem stern. Lots of moderns think she's too much like a mother to a child. I don't think that's what's going on, and I want to come to that in a second. But she's never not stern with him. Um, Beatrice says to Matilda, 386, she answered, ask Matilda to explain, and then the lovely lady spoke as though she felt she had to free herself from blame. I've already made this clear to him, and this and much more, and Lethe, I am sure, could not have washed away the memory. Remember, when Dante went into the river Lethe, he had all of his sins, the memory of his sins, washed away. Even here with Matilda, Matilda feels as if she has to free herself from blame. So it's not just her attitude towards Dante, she brings it to anything she does, even Matilda feels almost some sense of shame when Beatrice speaks to her. So there's something severe in Beatrice that she brings because she's come from God here to this earthly paradise. It's not just her response to Dante. Matilda takes Dante to the river Unoe and um, dips him down, and in that moment, all of his memory of good deeds is restored. So from this moment on, he has lost his memory of all his sins, and all of the good things he did in life have been restored to his memory, so it's as if he's vital with life, with goodness, before he ascends. So, now what does all this mean? This, these ceremonies here on the top of the Holy Paradise. A couple of, a couple of important things. <clears throat> the first is, I think I've said this, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm repeating myself again. This. Um, encounter, this reckoning, really, with Beatrice, Dante's showing us, is a reckoning that every human being, if Dante is the epic hero and he represents every man, and he does, 
he's not like Achilles and Adidas. He is he is every man. He's us. He's the he's the Christian who who's in danger of being damned. We all know that. Every human being will have a similar moment of reckoning. Remember, this all takes place after he's been cleansed of his sins. When Beatrice arrives and Dante sees her and, he, and his blood begins to um, boil, he turns to, um, to look for Beatrice I mean, he turns to look for Virgil, and Virgil's gone. So that whole world of reason and the, the, the sensibility of the natural man is gone. He can't turn there anymore for help. Um, now he has to confront a difficulty of another order. So we are past purgatory. Um, Virgil crowned and mitered him. He's free. What's going on right now, it seems to me, involves a betrayal of Christ. Um, Beatrice is a Christ bearer. Remember that image of the of the uh, of the uh, griffin. Sorry. When Beatrice is looking into the eyes of the griffin in page 373 and Dante looks into her eyes he is seeing Christ. Bottom of 373. Imagine, reader, how amazed I was to see the creature standing there unchanged, yet in its image changing constantly. And while my soul delighted and amazed was tasting of that food, was satisfied, and at the same time makes one hungrier. Um, that's one of the most amazing images in all of literature for me. Dante, God made all human beings with infinite desires. Dante is looking into Beatrice's eyes when she looks at the griffin, and the infinite desires are satisfied, they're quieted, and set on for more. That's an image of, of paradise. <clears throat> that in the presence of an infinite God, man will, man will be at peace, his desires will be at rest, but since God is infinite, his desires, his desires will be set on infinitely. So this, this notion that we have of, of heaven as a static place is unreal, just unreal. What Dante shows is this extraordinary paradox, this dynamic. We're at peace while wanting more. Beatrice is bringing Christ to Dante. She's a Christ bearer. She's bringing something Virgil has no notion about. Nothing in the natural world could get him there. This is beyond Virgil. So Dante has a reckoning with um, Beatrice because he betrayed her. And I think he, it's an image of what every man is going to face because every man in some ways has betrayed Christ, whatever that image is. I, myself, I tend to believe it's going to be with spouses. I mean, the person we most live our lives with are the ones that we, you know, the, who have to encounter our sins more often. I don't know. I mean, it, you know, it, I can't say. Here it's Beatrice because remember, Beatrice is the one who first awakened Dante the beauty of the Trinity. She was an image of the Trinity for him. So here we have an image. Two things are going on. One is, it's an image of the reckoning every human being will face. We will have to reckon with those betrayals of a Christ-bearing person in our life, whoever that is. 
And the second is the mask that takes place, and I think that's Dante's way of showing us before he and Beatrice can ascend into the heavens, he has got to carry the whole history of the church with him. <clears throat> and it's not just the church, it's everything in nature. Remember when my argument at the end of the Purgatory was when, um, when all of the poets are gathered and Stasius arrives on that ledge, it's a way of showing, Dante showing us that um, we cannot have a mature faith until we carry that whole humanist tradition with us. That Stasius represents that humanist tradition reaching its maturity in faith. What Father keeps talking about, a cheap faith, that we, you know, like the Protestant, who just, it's all faith. Um, Christ took on our whole nature. So much of the real character of that human nature was revealed by the pagans. They're the ones who gave it to us. So, Dante has got to carry that humanism. He's saying to us in the work of purgation that we have, we've got to carry it. We've got to make it a part of our lives. That's what Christ did to be with him. That's what we've got to do. In addition to that, as if that weren't enough, we have to carry the life of the church. So this mask showing the history of the church, all of it, um, um, Dante has to experience. And remember, the, the 24 books of the Old Testament, the four books of the New Testaments, the minor epistle writers, Luke, writer of Acts, John, all of it, they're not just allegorical representations of people. They're not, ju they're not just that. Because several of those people are repeated. Yeah? Um, John is one of the Gospel writers. Um, um, he wrote a letter. So several of the people are repeated. What he's showing us is not only that these are, all these books are allegorical representations of persons, they are, they are things in themselves, books. But they're Christ-bearing because there's nothing in, in nature that isn't Christ-bearing. The whole Paradiso is going to show us that. There's nothing in nature that doesn't show Christ. So before Dante can go on, he has to carry, before he goes on to the supernatural things, he's got to carry all these things with him. That's our inheritance, that's our tradition. Our faith, the humanism that Christ took on, that's embodied in all this literature that we've been reading. So this is where we are at the end of the Purgatorium, okay? Before Dante can go into the heavens and, and now deal with what the supernatural virtues are gonna to reveal to him, He's got to be ready. He has to have this reckoning with Beatrice, and he has to carry the whole church tradition within him, the Christ-bearing things of the world. Okay? That's where we are. Let me stop here. Any questions before, <clears throat> before I take on this paradiso? To, to Just go back over the last sentence that you said. Dante has to carry forth the church's tradition with him before he can enter into I don't even know Linda yes. he has to carry the whole the whole church tradition I, I don't know the whole hu he has to carry the humanist tradition it has to be realized in him and I think the reason for the mask is um, is to lay out that whole tradition to show it um, it's, a, it's an interesting moment if you think time and space in here are not time and space as we know it you know Dante had to be going to church every day of his life or weekends the way we do, you know. 
He knew all this stuff. He experienced it weekly, the way we do when we go to Mass. But here it is all at once. The whole tradition is laid out. It's there. With what Constantine did to embroil us in the state, what Charlemagne did later, the, the struggles with the papacy, all of it. We, we are... Christ is the Church. We have been asked to bear him, to be Christ-bearers. Dante has to carry this within him before he can complete his journey <clears throat> in paradise. But, but is that, you know, one of the things that, you know, humanism, I can, you know, that, that sometimes I can hear people in the church saying that, that, that humanism, you're saying what preceded the church is important to all, what the pagans have brought, their own art, artists, art and history and literature. Yeah. Now, if you, but that seems for a lot of people, that's kind of a, a distraction. It's kind of like you're supposed to be against humanism. You can hear that sometimes. Tom, I, I, I want to be careful here. I think that's that's the that's more true of the Protestant world than a Catholic. But I, you've heard me say I believe that the Catholic, the modern, particularly the modern American Catholic, has been Protestantized. That because the 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 Protestant attitude towards nature, it's all fide. It's solo you know, solo scripture. It's either scripture alone, faith alone, but the whole natural order is ruined. It's, it's, it's a darkened attitude. So when you hear Protestant debaters debate on things and you get to a point of reason, they will always turn to scripture. They'll say faith. You know, the whole natural order and, and reasons, the work that we do with our reason to learn from nature is gone. It's removed. The danger for Protestants is the, the, the more educated they get and the more they see how good reason is and how much it leads to faith, how compatible it is with it, the more likely they are, they're going to be converted. What you're describing to me seems peculiar to a Protestant spirit, not okay. the modern mind. The scientific mind is, is rational-based. It tends to turn against scripture, but the, the, the modern temper in, by its very nature, shouldn't have been anything against the humanist tradition. It, I think it does, the scientific mind, but generally speaking, it shouldn't. But I think what you're describing tends to be more true of a Protestant, but I, the Catholic communities today have been, you know, carry that same attitude that um, we've talked a little bit about this, so I don't want, I don't want to labor that, but... No, but doesn't humanism um, today imply secularism? Say? Doesn't humanism imply, isn't it seen today as equivalent to secularism? Like that's different. Uh, that's a good point. That's, that's. Here, yeah. Say that again. Yeah, I, I, say it again, Doc. Tom just asked me. Humanism is seen as secularism today. Yeah. And, that's, and that's what people are saying you need to avoid is secularism. The humanist tradition, tradition is different. No. Oh. Oh. Well, the humanist tradition takes all that is good in human. Um, I mean, there's there's humanism in Aristotle and um, yeah. Know. See, yeah, Jacques Maritain has written a book called True Humanism, which is I mean, I, I've mentioned Maritain before. He's he's one of the two great philosophers of the 20th century. Just an extraordinary figure. One of his books is called True Humanism, and in that book he makes the argument, I think rightly so. The true humanism always made a place for something transcendent. You get that in Aristotle, you get it for Plato. 
So if you go back to the pagan world and associate humanism with the pagan world, the very best pagan said, if you ever consign man over to just what's animal in him, you consign him to a terrible, unfortunate destiny, a death. Because all the pagans said there was something godlike, divine in man. Aristotle said it, Plato said it. A modern secular humanist is different because he denies God. So there are different kinds of humanism. That's your. But if you look back at the ancient pagan pre-Christian humanist, who, who, they all believed in gods. The modern, if, if what you mean by humanism today is agnostic or you know, atheist, you're talking about a different brand of humanism. It's, it's, it's so peculiar to the modern mind after science becomes a way of you know, looking at the world. Let me stop because we've got to, just very quickly, um, I want to try to put the Paradiso in a whole. And so I want to look at the epic in, in a minute in, in the context of the tradition in which we've been working. We've been seeing how important it is to, to see, to learn to read for holes. It's so easy to take passages out of the Bible and treat those passages in isolation and without seeing what meaning they lose when we take them out of the whole. We have to learn to read the Bible as a whole. We have to learn to read books as a whole. And there's no way to read them as holes without putting them in the context of their tradition. We saw that. If you go on to read the Odyssey, and you've not read the Iliad, you'll miss half the Odyssey, because half of the Odyssey contains the Iliad. Everything that goes on there is, is the result of everything that happens in the Iliad. We've seen that. If you're reading the Aeneid, and you've not read the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's a million things you won't see. Those of you who've done that know. One half of the Iliad is based on, I mean, one half of the Aeneid is based on the Iliad. The other half of the Aeneid is based on the Odyssey. There's not a sentence in Virgil that doesn't carry Homer forward. If you've read Dante and not read Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, you know how much you mean. The, the leader for two-thirds of the Dante's journey is Virgil. And half of the scenes, the Francesco Paola, goes back to Dido and other. Dante could do those things with those scenes because he's read that tradition. This thing about carrying the tradition is not just me spouting off. It's it's what Dante's doing at the end of the Purgatorio, this humanist decision he's asking us to carry forward because he's seen how much it helps him in his faith. So we have to learn to see things in light of a larger tradition. The Protestant mind weakens that. They, they see the tradition is not a good thing, you know, that scripture is the source. Father keeps saying in an amazing way, said the tradition was already there before scripture was written. <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll come to the scheme in a second. One of the most important things to see about these three canticles, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradiso, each one has its own mode. As Dante and Virgil were moving through the Inferno, we saw that the mode of life was irony. Remember, none of the souls are aware of what they're doing. And we feel the irony of it because both Virgil and Dante are aware. So we become aware of the, of the things that they cannot see. And I remember in that one talk I gave that irony helps produce humility. We see that human beings think they see things when they don't. It should 
make us more mindful that very often we think we have answers to things, want to act like we have all the answers when we don't. So the mode, the mode of life in the inferno is irony. People are stuck in their lives. The mode of activity in the purgatorio is hope, wonder. There's not a, a level that, that Virgil and Dante come to that doesn't involve some wonder. Remember, everyone, that the souls in purgatory are doing penance. They're full of joy. They look forward. Their, their hearts are open. Um, when, when Stasius arrives, that was one of the most glorious moments of wonder in the whole purgatorial. When Stasius arrives and he learns that the man in front of him is Virgil, what does he do? He bends down, yeah, he falls to his knees to kiss his feet. And remember he grasped him, and I, I said that was that moment, surprised by joy. I recall that Wordsworth poem. Were you all here? Mm-hmm. Recall the Wordsworth poem when Wordsworth's sister had died? And the two used to take walks, remember? And he was out by himself after Dorothy had died. And he's so transported in this one moment that he turns to her. Because very, very often, people, you hear this story a lot with, for spouses who lose somebody, that in a moment of rapture, the, the first instinct is to share. You want to turn there, you know? <laughs> Brings tears to my eyes. Because we know that happens you know, when we lose somebody. Um, Full of wonder. The Stasius moment is the climax of all those moments of wonder until they get to the earthly paradise. The mode of life of paradise is forgiveness and joy. Purgatorial, they live in hope. They hope, they're longing to get there. They desire. Remember, they want to be, they want to suffer the penance. Remember at the, in the, at the circle of lustful when the, when the soul is talking with Dante, he says, I have to make this quick because I want to get back to the fire. He wants to get back to punishments. How many of us do that? Most of us want to get as far away from punishments as we can. He wants to get back. In purgatory, they're hopeful. They're looking forward. They're desiring to move on. In the Perdiso, people are in joy. They're in a state of forgiveness. The penance, the sins are over. They don't remember them any longer. It's a state of it's a state of beatitude. So, when all of the souls come to Dante and each one of the planets, each one of the heavens, they all bring a, a different degree of joy, of blessedness. They're all equally there, but they have a different degree, a different intensity of blessedness according to their actions and the graces given them. So, everybody lives in a state of forgiveness. They are, remember, in hell everybody's fixed. In paradise everybody's fixed. Those are eternal states. Purgatory is is a movement towards an end. Now we're in heaven again. We've returned to final ends, but this time justice has been answered. Um, The sins have been forgiven. The penance has been done. All of that is behind them. Now they're in blessedness. Um, over and over and over again we hear the souls in paradise saying our peace is in his will in his will is our peace remember we had hints of that in the inferno as another wills as another wills this is the major question for me and I want to come back to it in a second 
Um, here are the great themes of the first eight cantos. God is everywhere. It's the opening canto. Again and again we get these lines saying that God is everywhere present. The first great theme introduced to us is the moon spots. <laughs> Couldn't be more intellectual. We've got this journey, this amazing adventure, and suddenly in the first planet when Dante enters the moon, he raises this question about moon spots, and suddenly we get this very this scientific discourse on rarity and density of matter. Where in the world did that come from? Why did Dante put that there? Now, I'm going to come back. Next vows, and then justice, and in the level of um, justice, I think it's, yeah, justice will be uh, inheritance. I didn't put that down here, but moonspots, vows, justice, and inheritance. Those four themes are the major themes of the first eight cantos. Here's my challenge to you guys. We're going to have a quiz. <laughs> Next class. Quiz. What do all those things have in common? Moonspots, vows, justice. By the way, Canto 7, in which this whole question of justice, how a just act could be justly punished. In, in Canto 7, how a just, Jerusalem was destroyed, destroyed, how a just act could be justly punished. It puzzles Dante, this question of justice. And then um, heredity. What do all those things have in common? Well, Christ. But the question is, can we find him? So my challenge to you for next week is, can you find Christ in all these things? Because that's what Dante's, that's the task he's taken on himself. The entire purgatorio will be this unveiling of God's presence everywhere, particularly Christ. So see if you can find him in the moon spots, in these vows, in um, this question of justice, and then finally in, in heredity. Okay, why Beatrice? This to me is the crux of this whole meeting. She threw me, she threw me for a loop. Um, this is, I want to try to put this in perspective. When we finish at the Paradiso, I won't go back. At the end of our time on the Paradiso, I'm not going to do an overview. I won't do that. So this is my attempt to try to put everything that we've done for the last several months into perspective so that we'll see how amazing what Dante did is. Okay? So all of this is, in some senses, to help prepare for the Paradiso. What is an epic? An epic, remember, is a word, a word, epos, the Greek epos, a word. And it very often means a divine word, a divine word, a word. Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son. When, Dunt, when Homer makes his invocation, he is invoking Calliope to sing. So the whole of the Iliad, the whole of the Odyssey, is the singing of a god. A god giving his or her word to the poet, to us through the poet. Yeah? A divine order is being revealed. Homer invokes him because he can't tell the story on its own. It reveals 
it, it deals with divine things. At the end of our work on the Purgatorio, I remember telling you that what Dante, I gave you that quote from the end of the Paradiso, where he says, all things came down to this one form. And I suggested then that at the heart of every, dis every discursive work, a thesis, a paper you write, a paragraph you speak verbally, at the heart of every collection of words, if we write a paper for a teacher in class, <coughs> is a silent, unspoken word. Otherwise, how can we account for the coherence or the unity of that paper? You all, I'm sure it's been a long time for most of you since you wrote a five-page paper for a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. But are you all following me? How do you account? What, how do you account for the unity? Where, where is that unity? The argument that I'm making here that I think Dante believes in, it's what he's doing with the Divine Comedy, is that this massive collection of words, the only reason we can explain its unity or its coherence is that the center of it is this invisible word, the word. It gives form to everything. So, epos, a word, long before Christ came into the world, the ancients had this sense that there was a divine word. And I've suggested in, at the end of the Purgatorio that there is this unheard, unspoken word, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, right? He's un, it's unheard, unspoken. We don't hear him. Yes? He's the in, in the Trinity, in the life of the Trinity, in eternity, we don't hear that word. It's eternal. It's infinite. When he enters time, he speaks to us. Then we hear the second person speaking. But behind him is this eternal word, unchanging, infinite, endless, silent. Is this the word that epos, uh, epos the word in the... Epos, epic. Yes, that, that the same word, but he manifests himself in Christ in time. Well, what I want to be careful here. Epos okay. is what the pagans used to describe the epic. That's the word we use when we describe the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. I'm right now extending it into a Christian world, but what I'm trying to do is show there are amazing roots for it already in the pagan world, in this notion of the epic. Because the epic is this vast work, right, full of words. Truth. Huh? But even then, in the epic world, it was true. Yes. And so the word manifested in time in Christ is true. Yes. So it has that connection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And remember, I, I, one of the arguments that I'm making from the beginning is that all epics have intimations of Christ. The parousia is the return of the king, that this king is coming back. So that in amazing ways, these old epics had some intuitive sense of him long before he ever came. A new hero. The, the hero is, is the man who has to deal with a disorder, who has to f confront face and overcome these extraordinary obstacles, always with the help of the gods. There are all these disorders among his people that he has to face, and with the help of the gods, he does something to make it possible to change those and um, prepare the conditions for a new founding. So all epics deal with the founding, a new order, the, um, a people comes to a new identity of itself, that the disorders in which it was trapped 
um, are freed. So in the Iliad, the disorders of the honor code, this, this horrible sense of human beings as objects that have this monetary value that you can use them and increase your esteem. It's very modern in that sense. Remember, they kill human beings to take their armor, their shields, their horses. The equivalent for us today is of money. Women at the top of it. The Odyssey is the great critique of women, the, the way in which women use men. We've gone through all of that. Um, so um, each, each epic has given us an image of something heroic. And I suggested in the ancient epics that these were intimations of Christ. Achilles was in some ways. Odysseus was in some ways. Achilles gives us a new sense of the, of the human dignity that men are capable of, you know, that was taken away in that world. Odysseus gives us a sense of the possibilities in marriage. We saw the disorders in the marriages in Sparta with um, Menelaus and Helen, in Pylos with Nestor and his wife. Um, even in Odysseus' own in Ithaca, it's in disorder. Odysseus brings a new order to marriage. And in each case, the hero comes out of that old world into a new one. It's the beginnings of something new. That's the, that's the action of the epic. Aeneas brings into existence this new city, this Rome, this eternal city. Dante gives us an image of a new hero. The new hero is not a man who fights with arms. His, his dignity isn't measured in terms of um, the virtues of valor and courage and the, the virtues of a warrior, the, the, the athlete today, the stud, you know, the, our image of today is the athlete, you know, the, the basketball players and the football players. And the new image of the hero is a man of learning. The spiritual battle that Dante undertakes is confronting the disorders between church and state, trying to find his human place in the world and his journey back to God. That's the struggle. That's the spiritual battle that, that Dante embarks on. And what he's showing us is the thing that's most natural to man is to learn. And that is, a, that is a great spiritual undertaking. You all know that. You, you, you've all arrived at this age and you're reading epics? God. I mean, you, I've said this, I keep, every time we go home, I say to Suzanne, why are they here? Why are they here? I'm just amazed. I'm not kidding. You, I'm, I'm amazed at you guys that you're still doing this. It truly amazes me. Some of the characteristics of the ancient epic. The veil between the temporal and the divine is ripped, <coughs> torn apart. The veil separating the material and immaterial realities is lifted, showing that there's this intimate relationship between the gods and humans. It's one of the defining characteristics of the epic. That veil is removed. Remember in the Iliad, for those of you who read it, remember at the very outset when the battles picked up again, Diomedes goes back into battle and Athena lifts the veil and he can see the gods. Um, that's what the epic does. The epic pulls back the veil to show this divine reality engaging our world. Four, another quality. The epic involves a metaphysical extension of time and space. It deepens the imagination of our imaginations 
and helps us to see what goes on in our world in terms of a larger cosmic vision. We find our place are in, in a large order. We're a part of God's order. Um, with Pascal in the modern world, Pascal was the one who, who used the phrase infinite spaces. It's as if space goes on forever and we get lost. In the epic world, um, those vast infinite spaces are made familiar because they're inhabited by the gods. So we find our place with them. By the way, this is going to be very, what I'm about to say here, I think is going to blow you away, but remember in the ancient world, we still, these, these our planets still have the names of these gods. Um, so the epic always involves this metaphysical extension of time and space. Um, there's this great amplitude, plenitude, that we are part of something larger, and it is in, intimately connected with us. Um, another, the mysterious dynamic of the sexual relationship between man and woman is uncovered and explored. Every epic has had at its heart the sexual relationship between man and woman and the disorders that exist between us. It's one of the effects of the fall. The Iliad, what started the war? Helen, the beauty of Helen, Paris taking her, the, the betrayal of the marriage vows. That was a great enough crime to warrant the Greeks gathering together to go across the sea to Troy to, to get Helen back. And we saw the disorders in the book. The men, the men treat women as objects. If you, if you rank the booty, shields, horses, you know, women are at the top. Why does Achilles withdraw from the war? Agamemnon wouldn't give Briseis back. Remember when the priest comes to ransom her? He's not going to give her back. And then, and then Agamemnon takes Achilles' woman, Briseis, or Chryses. They wouldn't, he wouldn't return Chryses, the priest daughter. So women are treated as objects. Um, in the Odyssey, we saw that the Odyssey was a great critique of women. It's, to me, it's probably one of the most profound critiques of women and the way they use men. It's very, very indirect or hidden. Odysseus spends eight years with Calypso. Calypso means to hide away. Apocalypse, to unconceal, to reveal, right? Revelation. Apocalypse. Calypso is where Odysseus was concealed for eight years. She was a threat to his kleos. What does kleos mean? Honor. Remember that was the great virtue that the Iliad was about? A man's honor, kleos, his honor was a, a dignity of the human soul. If, if Odysseus remains at Calypso's island under her control, hidden, he will, he will not come to fulfill his being, who he was made to be. Um, in uh, the Aeneid, Creusa has to die. Aeneas is with Dido for a year. He put off founding. There's a new sense of a marriage. He goes to, and marries Lavinia, and his marriage of her is what brings on the war in Italy because Turnus is going to lose her. So, And then here in Dante, it was Beatrice who first gave him a glimpse of the Trinity in her beauty. And when she scolds him, she said, you betrayed me. When I died, you should have loved me more. But instead of loving me more, you turned to your flesh. And so every epic has, 
has, um, has had to look at the sexual disorders pretty, pretty closely. What is the, um, what's the first real entrance into hell? Francisco and Paola. Remember? The, the earlier episode is the virtuous pagans. They haven't sinned. They're, they're virtuous people. They're just not in heaven. The, the doorway into heaven is the lust between Francisco and Paola. She breaks her marriage vows and the husband kills her and they're, you know, and, and she's there blaming God. She's faulting God, pointing the finger at him. So at the heart of every, every ep epic is this honesty about the trouble that we have together sexually <coughs> as, as men and women. Um, every epic has had this extraordinary virtue. This, to me, it's, it's one of the most amazing things about it. It, it. it almost resembles God actively in the world. It takes the past and carries it forward and redeems it as it goes. Every epic carries the past with it and changes it. So the Odyssey has the Iliad everywhere in it. The Aeneid has the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Divine Comedy has the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. And um, in the Paradiso, when, when we get to the higher realms, we're going to see God redeeming the past. Well, how could that be? Well, because there is no past for God. You know, I mean, we're going to learn to see time and space in a very different way here once we enter the Paradiso. God isn't limited by time the way we are. And one of the unfortunate things for us is very often we try to limit God to our own notions, and when we do, we, you know, we get into trouble. Um, okay. Um, and the last one was the uh, Prusia, the second coming. Every one of the epics has shown um, um, a king returning, the return of the king. This, the, these disorders that are the subject of each epic suddenly have to contend with a king who comes to answer them. The return of the king, Achilles returns to war, Odysseus returns home, both of them are kings and they restore order for their people. Aeneas returns home to Dardania. He didn't even know he was going home. It was this ancient past that was the home of Troy. He didn't know it, but he was actually going back to this ancient home. And when he returns, remember when we did the Aeneid together, there are all these what I call converging realities. There's a number of things all taking place at the same time that are all pointing to the same thing. There have been these prophecies that a foreigner would come and bring order to the, to the civil wars in Italy. Aeneas returns, there's this outbreak of wars, and suddenly all these civil wars that have been tearing Italy apart are answered, they're resolved. Rome brings a peace to the world, the Pax Romana. Um, it, is, it is that world that Christ comes into. And most of the Christian fathers made a lot of that. Um, that wasn't an accident. That was God preparing for his, um, his coming into the world. Now, why Beatrice? Why Beatrice? Why Beatrice? Why a woman? I know that must sound more provocative than I mean it to be. Maybe I do, I don't know. Why a woman? The masculine is a, the, or the epic is a masculine enterprise. It's always the men who have to confront these problems. Even if the image changes, it's a masculine enterprise. But the man can't 
undertake this enterprise and he has no hope of succeeding without the help of women. We've seen that. The women in epics are guides, temptresses, and they're goals. They can be devouring man-eaters. They're all those things. Um, and in many ways, goals. They're the end. Um, and in each of the epic heroes, the major ones, the <coughs> goddess guiding the hero was a goddess of wisdom or love. Athena was the goddess helping Odysseus and Achilles, right? And Venus, the goddess of love, was the goddess helping Aeneas. So, as if we look at the epics as a paradigm of our human action here on Earth, the, the men are to undertake this, this, this task, this the divinely appointed task to deal with these disorders in the world, and he's got to bring an order to them, but he cannot do it without the help of women. And in the course of the struggles, women are very often man-eaters. They are temptresses. They, they do things to throw off the thing. But they are also absolutely essential to the success of the quest. Athenus is the goddess of wisdom, and Venus is the goddess of love. Why is wisdom imaged as feminine? That's always been true. And I don't think it's an accident that Beatrice is the one who's going to lead Dante through the last third of his, of his journey. Why is wisdom imaged as a woman? I'm going to try to answer that in a second. Tom, did you want to say anything to this? Well, I, I mean, it sounds, if you're, you're Jungian, it's so archetypal, is that the feminine is, uh, you don't encounter the feminine. It's like if you do this as an outer journey, like you, you marry a woman or you encounter women, uh, and that's one thing, but you have to come terms with your soul, for your soul mate, which is image as a woman. And that woman, if you don't integrate her into your psychology, then the, the imbalance in your masculinity is off. So you have to try to integrate and come to terms with that, that uh, the, the divine feminine or the yeah. feminine. And he called it the animal. So, you know, it's a soul thing. The anima, yeah. yeah. Um, so, is the reverse true, Tom? Anima. Yeah, and the animus is for the woman that she has to come to terms with her masculine, right. masculine side. Right. So it's the balancing or the integration of what has been divided yeah. and now hope, hopefully becomes integrated. And it's the only, if you don't come to terms with that counter-sexual part of yourself, you don't become fully human. You won't be completed. You can't. You'll yeah, be incomplete yeah. until you do something that you're missing. By the way, before, because right. because um, we're um, God made us both, and we're different, and our completeness depends on our becoming one together. So it's um, it's true for both of us. But well, one of the things I, years ago, one of the first talks I ever gave uh, at the newcomers group in Grapevine. Is this must be 30 years ago. I, I named the talk um, uh, "Marriage: How How Men Lose Their Souls and Women Lose Their Minds." <laughs> Great talk. So what I meant was, is is if I put the burden on my wife 
to carry my army figures. Then, and I do battle with her out, out, outwardly, but if I don't integrate that, then she's carrying that which I will not own. I've given it away to her, and she's carrying it. So if she leaves me, I feel bereft because I don't have access to my own depth and my own subjectivity. So what I have to do is realize it's an inner and outer drama. And she's carrying this and she personifies that for me and gives me access to it. Now if I don't develop that connection to myself, then I'm over-dependent on the female and, and, and I'm out of balance. And the woman, the, the animus is the mind. So the woman has to find access to her own thoughts her own masculine principles and her her ability to use words. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, uh, men who are poets, women are drawn to. Well, that part of them is is part of their own nature. But if they leave it out there, they don't take they never own their own authority to be articulate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You see, so you can lose your. So if you burden in marriage, is you give away that that person, you project that part of you onto the bad person, but you have to do the inner and outer work to make the marriage work. And the same thing. That's why I say a woman can give that to her, mm -hmm. her husband. She loses her mind if she doesn't own it. She doesn't learn to articulate. She doesn't learn to discriminate. She yeah. doesn't learn to think. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, there's a lot. That some of the res I have some reservations about Jung. You already know. Oh, sure. Um, he, he's got this notion of a progress from, I think he, he, he treated in terms of moving from Eve to Helen to to um, Mary to, uh, what's the, to uh, Sophia. And in the first, in the first stage of that with Eve, he, he, he looks at, um, he sees that men look at women in terms of objects, and I, I think he, I think he, I think he's mistaken there. And I'm a little bit troubled by that dynamic, yeah. the way he sets it up, because there's a there's an implied hierarchy there that 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 I don't think does justice to what men and women have in common, because woman is related to what's intellectual in man, and or or spiritual in man by relating to his soul, and man is related to woman. Through the, or in terms of the mind. And it seems to me men and women are related to each other through both, through the soul and the intellect, both of them. And to limit it that way, it seems to me. Well, isn't that the balance he was talking about? Well, it isn't, because Hume yeah. sees it. I, I don't want to get, I don't want to get off there, but I, anyway, I've just got reservations. Yeah. Let me just offer a thought here on Beatrice and what Dante's doing. Because in Beatrice, He's giving us an image of, of not only the intellect that, that we may think of it as masculine, but as the soul and as transcendent, that, that is one with Christ, that she brings both of those to him. Because reason and faith are perfected in her by a supernatural love. So she's very articulate. She uses her powers of reason so extremely well to explain everything. But the source of all of that is God. But here, let me go back. Why is the soul feminine for the Greek and Roman mind? I, I think, I mean, this is my, for what it's worth for you, it's, I've thought a lot about this. And there's a lot about what modern psychologists do in this that I don't agree with, but I think the, the, 
um, wisdom is imaged as a woman in the ancient world because the, this ancient, this humanist, pagan world that saw our human nature in some ways so much more clearly than the modern Christian, they saw that wisdom by its nature was vulnerable to the world and particularly to masculine force because we've all seen that men are given to power, physical power, because they're stronger than women, physically stronger. So wisdom is always threatened, it's vulnerable. Um, there are two images, um, Suzanne reminded me of one, I, I forgot on Monday night, two images in the ancient, well, in the pre-modern pre world of, of women who are teachers. They're rare. One of them is in the Platonic Dialogues, if you've read the Platonic Dialogues, you know that Socrates is the one who meets these interlocutors and questions them, and these men who always claim to be certain about what they know, and then after undergoing these this series of questions with, from Socrates, um, they discover they, they don't, in fact, know what they claim to have known, they get really angry, and then they finally kill him. He's the man in the cave. When people make you aware that you don't know what you claim you know, you get really angry. And that's what they do, they kill him. In one of the dialogues, the symposium, which is about love, love, the, all the men are giving their definitions of what love is, and there, there's about six, six definitions, I can't remember, that. I'd have to go through them. And, but when it comes to Socrates' turn to describe what love is, he gives us his example, the learning he took from a woman named Diotima. Diotima was his teacher. There's this long section in the, in the uh, symposium in which he describes that exchange with her. And what she's, the upshot of that exchange is, Diotima says, love is begotten on the beautiful. It's a begetting, it's a bringing of life out of the beautiful. Because she says, Thomas would agree with it, St. Thomas would agree with this. It's the sight of beauty that awakens desire. We've been seeing that from the beginning. When the men see the beauty of a woman, what do they feel? Lust, desire. When Beatrice returns, I feel that old desire, that old net. When men are in the presence of women, I've told this to my, my daughter-in-laws. Our, our youngest daughter-in-law is a convert from, from Protestant. A fundament, her, her parents were fundamentalists. And, they think she's been given over to the Antichrist, um, and she didn't. She didn't grow up. She didn't grow up as a Catholic, and and she, now she's in a religion in which there's a pope, a father, a man. And I said, you know, the the Protestant world is at a disadvantage. It doesn't even understand because there's no father. I mean, the father role is diminished horribly in the Protestant world. There are no fathers. Mothers are in control. Why? Put a man and a woman in marriage and take out God. What you've learned? What happens? There's not a man who can stand next to a woman, she will undo him. Is that clear? I mean, if you take what the pagans say, there's no way Odysseus is going to get free from Circe or Calypso. He can't. Aeneas, Aeneas gives up his divine calling when he comes under the influence of Dido. So, um, put a man and a woman together with no God, and, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I... We are terribly outnumbered. I mean, we are, we are in trouble. Um, women are an image of a transcendent beauty, but they have also been embodiments of wisdom. Because in terms of the power of the world, they are always at a disadvantage. 
right, next to male strength, they will always lose out. I mean, women have been encouraged to fight more with men today. I think that's going to be ultimately, I think it's going to be ultimately harmful, but um, wisdom is imaged as feminine because it's always vulnerable to the world. The world doesn't want it. The world threatens it. If you look at wisdom as it's conceived in Christian terms with Dante, before we get to the modern psychologist, she is carrying a wisdom um, that's capable because of her, because the God that she images is the Word, the source of all truth, intellectual truth. There's nothing she can't bring to him to lead him back to God. Virgil can't. The masculine mind on its own terms cannot do that. Remember, Beatrice was an image of the Trinity. She's the first one that in her beauty showed Dante um, the, this resplendent light of the Trinity. Remember that line from the, the, in the Purgatorio? Women who have the intelligence of love? Where does that... We always think of love in terms of a passion. Women who have the intelligence, the, who have the intelligence of love, that comes straight from God. That comes from a God of love who is reason itself. So, um, so why Beatrice? I think for a number of reasons. One is because in her beauty she images the, the Trinity. She's what awakens love. She's an image of that in woman which awakens love in man. But because of her faith, her first love was God, so, and she's Christ-bearing. She brings Christ to Dante. She's doing all of those things that Virgil can't. If this doesn't make sense, I mean, just, and remember, too, it was the women who were at the cross, not the men. I think John was the only one at the cross. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. It was all the women. This capacity of women to love Mary, you know, um, Sophia, wisdom, philosophia. Oh, the other one, Diadema is one in the Socratic Dialogue. One of the most important books, by the way, I can't recommend this enough. One of the most important books I think has ever been written is a book by Boethius called um, Consolation. Consolation of Philosophy. Thanks. Consolation of Philosophy. It's, um, I think, about the 7th century. Dante loved Boethius. So did Chaucer. Chaucer loved Boethius. Consolation of Philosophy. It's a little thin book. Very, very thin. Very small. It's one of the shortest books I've ever read. In that one book, Boethius consolidates almost the, all the major truths of Plato and Aristotle and the differences between them. It's a remarkable book. Boethius, the writer, is in jail. He was actually persecuted by what was going on in these struggles between church and state. He's in jail. He's going to be executed. Philosophy comes to him and, and tells him, stop whining. <laughs> Here, wait, listen. To Here's a good cat. I should have brought this up earlier. He, she, she says to him, here's your problem. You've been reading too much poetry. <laughs> Toughen up some here, will you? She says, you won't get out of this until you learn some truths from philosophy. You, you cannot answer these things because poetry will develop this great sensitivity to you, but unless you get tough on philosophy, you're going to... Anyway, it's a remarkable, remarkable book. It's, it's feminine. 
she comes to him in the guise of a woman. Um, so philosophy, Mary. Mary is called the first of the disciples. You know, the seat of wisdom. Sophia in the Eastern Church. Wisdom has always been feminine because women are far less given to power well, to the modern world. Women are far less given to power than men. So, so there is a quality that is selfless, not self-serving as it is for men who want to get ahead, who want to prove their pride. It's the woman effacing herself. It's what the disciples have been asked to do, what the disciples of Christ are asked to do, to effect, to, to put themselves away in order to bring Christ forward. So that's what she's going to do. So let me just stop there, but briefly give you this quick overview, and then we'll stop. This is important to see. This is the cosmic view that... Um, that Dante's using in his scheme, and it's important um, for reasons we've already seen. Um, it's divided into three sections that are that are intelligible, that have reasons, that will become clear as we go up. One of the most important things to see right now is this. This is a geocentric view of, of the cosmos. It's an Earth-centered, right? According to the Ptolemaic scheme, Earth was at the center of the universe, and the planets revolved around it, right? We still hold to that Ptolemaic view of things when we say the sun rises and the sun sets. We know the sun doesn't rise, and we know that it doesn't set, but we still use that language. Um, and according to this view, everything from the moon down, from the sublunary sub um, is a world subject to decay and death. It's a mortal world. Everything is in flux and it can't be known. Now hold on, I, I'm going to qualify that, but just... In general terms, everything's in its flux and it can't be known. If everything's constantly changing, this is Heraclitus, ancient Greek philosopher. If everything's constantly changing, how can you know it? This is one of the questions Plato and Aristotle had to answer. They did. If everything's constantly changing, you can't know it, right? Because no sooner do you have a hold of it than it's already gone. It's, it's like a river in motion. So according to this scheme, nothing down here can be known. Now think about this. This to me is amazing. What do the poets do? They show us that there can be, that certain things can be known about us. That's what they give us in the epic. What's out here is knowable because it's permanent. It's unchanging. These are the, um, the um, orbits of the planets, the planetary spheres. And because they're unchanging, permanent, constant, they can be known. That's the way things are. And each one of these planets, by virtue of its nature, exercises some influence on man. So if you look at the epics in this light, you see that what, what men are trying to do at this primitive stage 
is try to understand their predicament here in terms of their cosmic relationship. Right? The, the, the gods are constantly engaging with them. E each with his different character. Right? Um, Apollo is very different from Jupiter. Or... Um, um, who might... Who might you know, if you go back to the Greek gods, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, all of them, they all bring, they all image distinct qualities, and they, sh they show the relationship between those gods and human beings. Remember, this, this was so important at the end of the Iliad, when Achilles returned to the war and the gods went back into battle with each other, Athena, who's the goddess of wisdom, defeated both Ares and Aphrodite's. Ares is the passion for war, Aphrodite is the passion for love. Athena, reason, overcomes the two dominant passions in man. It's a way of showing the importance of the intellect over our passions. In the, in the, in the, um, what's the, heliocentric. In the heliocentric scheme that comes in existence under Copernicus, 16th century, Copernicus discovers that the Earth is not at the center of the universe, that the Sun is. And this is crucial. This is so important. Under, understand this. When the Sun becomes the center of the universe, here's the Sun, and the planets revolve around, and the Earth takes its place as one of the planets, what happens to our understanding of ourselves? Now we can be known scientifically because we belong, we partake of the permanence that all the other planets do. Remember that, that's an extraordinary change, that's a radical change, that's why the, that's why the Renaissance was such a throwing off of everything. According to the old scheme, nothing could be known here because everything was constantly in flux. We could only know these things out here, scientifically. If you've read Ptolemy, you'll see that he has this very mathematical understanding of the cosmos. If you read Copernicus, you see the same, it's a mathematical understanding, but he says, the sun's here, the earth takes its place here, now because it takes its rotation and it partakes of the unchanging nature, we can know, we can know human beings. That's the beginning of the scientific study of man. It begins with the Renaissance and the scientific worldview. That's radical. In our world, we're still here. Is that clear? I'm missing something here, I'm thinking. I think we're okay. But we know today that all of this is going to go away anyway. This well, yeah, it is, yeah, it is. But it, 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 what's, what's really extraordinary about it is what you see Dante doing is using the latest scientific understanding of the universe to make sense of everything. If Dante were alive today and loved knowledge the way he did, there's not a question in my mind that he would take Heisenberg and Borg and Planck and all the modern physicists and the whole different worldview we have, and he would show God present in it so that faith and reason would be united in our world in a way. I mean, nobody stepped forward to do that, but... Okay, so this, in terms of what we're doing, this is the world of mutability. 
Immutability. All things are changing. This is the immutable world. Unchanging world. The world of the gods. Where the gods are. Where the eternal things are. When Dante and Beatrice enter the heavens, they are entering a world of permanence. They are leaving the world of flux and change behind. They're going into paradise to learn about final, unchanging things. So everything that, re everything that Beatrice reveals to Dante is of the nature of final truth. Okay? That's all. Just, um, it's important to see that because if we don't see that, we don't really understand the difference between Virgil and Beatrice's guides and their significance in terms of this whole journey, what they mean for Dante and for us. When she goes up, one of the first things that will happen, all of you know this, those of you who are Dante's described as being de um, transhumanized. He's changed. He will enter the moon. He will actually enter it. He's a body. We all know that bodies can't enter bodies. It's the definition of a body. But something happens to make it possible. Remember Stasius' discussion on the body, that these vital things that shades have make it possible for the shades to do different things. That was one of the things we talked about in, I think it was Canto 25. Something like that is happening. When they enter the heavens, Dante describes the two himself as being transhumanized. Like Paul in his, his voyage into the heavens. Remember Paul talks about having entered the third heaven? <clears throat> like Paul, he is entering the heavens. Some special grace is being given. He's being transformed. He's going to take part in a heavenly vision that's part of the prophecy that he's bringing back to us. So everything that he's about to bring us has the nature of a supernatural reality in earthly terms. It's a, it's a remarkable bringing together of faith and reason. Probably one of the most perfect expressions of that in all of our, all of our history. So that's where we are on the verge of paradise, okay? So when you read the, when you read the Paradiso, even if it's intellectual, and it's, it's heavily intellectual, try to struggle with this question. What is, what is Dante trying to reveal to us about, about God and our physical universe? Okay. You know, I, I just, just to go back to this, we're, we're done, but I wish somebody would step forward today to do this with the modern physicists, with Heisenberg and Borg, and you know all the all that we do with atomic physics and everything. I think people have that. Hmm? People have that. Catholics? I Catholics. And reveal God in it? Boy, give me a give me a bibliography, Don. I'd, I'd I'll hand it out. Delio, she's a she's a Franciscan scientist woman, a nun who is a scientist and uh, talked about evolution and her, her understanding of the cosmos is rather remarkable. Has she taken the modern physicists and, yes, and, and done what Dante did with them? Not, not what Dante did, but she sees, I mean, she pulled the faith and reason together. And it's rather remarkable. Hmm. I'd be glad if you guys put together a list. You got to put it together and give it to people. Yeah, I mean, I can, I'll find one of her books. And show yeah. It. yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, 
They, they, they learn to, they learn to hear. I do. Well, you know, I've always got a bag for you. You get a bag. Yeah. And yet Here you go, Lenny. No, no, I'm fine. No, no, no. Okay. You're still losing weight, but you make your bag. I'm working hard at it. I'm doing pretty 